Welcome back to episode four of our series on advanced cardiac resuscitation. I'm Ginger Locke, and I'm here with Kevin Joles, the Division Chief of EMS for Lawrence Douglas County Fire and Medical, and Joe Powell, who's the Emergency Medical Services Coordinator for the Rialto Fire Department in Rialto, California. These two services figured out how to make this work in two very different cities. There was one in Rialto, California, one in Lawrence, Kansas. How did they connect? Kevin, did Joe find you or did you find him? We kind of found each other um, through one of our, our mutual partners in, in Zoll. Um, we have some, some friends within our, our Zoll family that we were able to get a good connection. We were talking to them about uh, wanting to change our approach uh, to cardiac arrest and do better here in Lawrence and be able to, to come up with something better than what we were doing. And so moving forward, um, our partners with in Zoll introduced uh, Rialto Fire Department and, and ourselves, um, Dr. Caleb Trent, that's our medical director. And from there in January to March, we had talked nearly every single week, developing our protocol and um, engaging all the folks that we needed to engage to ensure that we had a, a strong understanding of what they were doing. And this just wasn't something that we were just gonna say, let's just give it a shot and see how it goes. We we really carefully dissected everything with, with Joe and and uh, Chief Grayson out there, and and as as we as quickly as we developed our curriculum, we developed a friendship, and and it's been a several years now that we've been able to stay in touch and we talk often. I'm glad that you found each other, and it sounds like what you're essentially saying, and we'll talk about this more is another time, is that this is reproducible. This is something that isn't geographical or specific to one system. So over time, the EMS profession has seen the expanded use of waveform capnography. It's my favorite vital sign, as it gets us, gives us a good indication of how the patient is metabolizing, how they're ventilating, how they're perfusing. We all kind of know it's the standard for continuously confirming advanced airway placement. But can you tell us more about how, how capnography is used in advanced cardiac resuscitation? Sure. So we've talked a little bit about, or we'll talk a little bit more about going um, further into the program, about capnography being um, an indicator on when to give medications, when to strategically uh, use electricity on the patient, and when the appropriate time to do other procedures is. And with this ACR program, uh, like you said, unexpectedly, capnography has become one of our favorite um, our favorite vital signs. It's something that we pay attention to um, more than even chest compressions because chest compressions goes away once we've got them on the autopulse and it's something that we don't really have to think about and it's kind of an afterthought as long as we know that that machine is working or if we are unable to put them on an autopulse um, that were mechanical, the manual CPR is being done um, adequately because we're using the puck and, and getting immediate feedback. So when we are doing quality CPR, capnography is usually um, very receptive to that, and we're getting really good end tidal numbers, as well as um, how we operate when we arrive on scene. Um, obtaining that end tidal early on in the cardiac arrest is of utmost important to us, and and we're we're able to achieve that um, probably a little bit differently than than others are doing it. But we're we're dropping an eye gel or um, or holding the the mask on the patient with the BVM with along with the rescue pod of the ITD. And, and really getting that end title so that we can see if it is strategically appropriate to shock that patient right away or if we need to prime that heart a little bit better using the uh, mechanical or manual CPR. Um, if we're paying attention um, as we should be throughout the cardiac arrest, 
at any given time, the patient can or, or should achieve ROSC. And with the achievement of ROSC, the entitle is going to spike dramatically. And that's going to be an indicator that we don't have to stop and feel for a pulse. If the ROSC is, is achieved and we've, we've got a pulse, that entitle is going to drive up. We're going to be able to continue CPR for another two minutes, evaluate the vital signs as a whole, SBO2 as well. If we can see a rhythm um, while we're using the mechanical CPR device or manual CPR device, we can evaluate that. That will um, that makes us not have to ever stop if we don't have to um, or inadvertently stop. And using that capnography is uh, has been tremendously um, advantageous for us. We use it also at the near the end or if we're finding that we're not seeing any uh, increase in uh, capnography, if we're staying down in the 15s or the low or, or high teens, if we're not seeing anything increase with the end title, then we can, we can start to consider discontinuing CPR. And I think, you know, Kevin, on, on top of that, you know, we're, we're using it to make a transport decision um, and, how, and a how long do we stay on scene decision. So uh, for us with an end title CO2 of over 15, we'll stay on scene for 30 minutes. Right, that's our that's our mandate um, for a couple of reasons. One, we uh, we initially saw that we were not getting our asysteles back until about 20, 25 minutes into the code, um, which was interesting for us. Uh, and we looked at the entitled CO2 trends, and those patients had entitled CO2s of over 15. Um, and so we stay on scene for 30 minutes with that entitled CO2 of over uh, 15. And actually, with our asystole patients we went from a ROS rate of 23% to a ROS rate of 42% just by staying on scene for 30 minutes. So you get a little bit of cultural pushback saying, hey, what are we gonna do, sit on scene, we should go to the hospital, we should go to the hospital, we should go see the doctor. But um, you know, first off, uh, when you call the base hospital, they're gonna tell you, you should transport the patient, right? So what we've done is we don't call the base hospital until after we're en route. So you don't get that situation. Um, but let me just, let me, so as you get that cultural pushback, the way that we explain that process is simply who has a better ROSC rate, us at Rialto Fire or the hospital? And that's not a very pleasant thing. I don't want a lot of friends and influence people kind of thing, right? But I have almost double the ROSC rate that the hospital does. So why would I take a patient and we know that when you transport, we know that compression fraction goes down. We know that monitoring the patient goes down, that all kinds of things get worse when you transport. So I want to get it done right here, right now, right? Why would I take a patient and decrease their level of care, put them in an ambulance, risk my citizens' lives, risk my guys' lives to take them someplace that's half, half the ROS grade? I'm not going to do it. We're going to stay on scene for 30 minutes and get those patients back. And, and especially those assistly patients that we would have uh, either transported or called relatively early in the code, we stay on scene for 30 minutes and work them up based on that end title CO2 number. When we started the, the protocol change um, several years back, our asystolic um, ROSC rate went up to 31%. And we were seeing those end titles driving up. They were late in the cardiac arrest. But in the past, we had only been working cardiac arrest for maybe 15 to 18 minutes. And that was including transport time. So we had started the arrest. Um, got him on the autopulse, or did manual CPR in the back of the ambulance, took him to the hospital, and we were a total combined, spent time with patient maybe 18 to 23 minutes. Now what we're finding is staying on scene and paying attention to that capnography, 
that we're in the 26 to 29 minute mark where we're seeing a lot of ROSC and not a lot, but 31%, 31% is a lot better than zero. And uh, so capnography has been a, a huge indicator for us, especially in asystolic patients. Yeah, same thing, same thing, Kevin. You know, when we go back and look at the data and we use case review and we, we follow the data, we have to have 12 to 15 minutes of continuous compressions, continuous, without any interruption before we get anything close to ROSC back. If, uh, if we stop, if we pause to check a rhythm or we do, we pause to, uh, you know, to innovate or do, we pause to do anything, we start that clock over again. We need another 12 to 15 minutes of continuous compressions. It's got to be continuous compressions. And so we see that same basic trend. Thanks, guys. And Joe, can you tell us about what you're doing with epi? Everybody's talking about epi and cardiac arrest. It sounds like you're deprioritizing epi in the order of interventions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so um, we, we all know that epi saves lives, right? That drugs uh, save lives and paramedics save lives, except that's not the case, right? We've <laughs> got to look at the data. We've got to make decisions based on what's doing the best thing for our patient. And, and epi's not that. Right. If you look at the study that uh, came out of the UK maybe six months ago, maybe maybe six months, 10 months ago, um, a study of over 8,000 folks, and they said clearly that they had their, their ROS rate was significantly higher with epinephrine. Significantly higher with epinephrine. Okay, then give epinephrine early and often, right? That makes sense. Except the second caveat in that, in that study is that significantly more patients had severe neurologic impairment in the epi group. Okay, then nobody gets epi, right? Nobody gets epi, nobody gets epi, let's stop giving epi altogether. But maybe, maybe that's not the case. So, and maybe there's a sweet spot. So first off, let me tell you that there is a, the, the sweet spot is not when you first get on scene, when you're doing crappy CPR, your patient doesn't have a rescue pod, doesn't have a mechanical CPR device, or not in a heads-up environment, and the ICP is through the roof, that is not when you give epinephrine. You're going to fry a ton of cells given epi at that point. You want a well-oxygenated, a good pH brain. You want to decrease ICP by all of the means that we've decreased ICP, proper ventilation, a rescue pod, heads-up CPR, right? All of those things that we're doing to decrease ICP. Then maybe you want to give epi. So let me let me give it to you this way. I'm going to give you two caveats, Ginger, right? And I'm going to let you choose. So if I say, I'm going to give you the caveat that no matter what, we're going to get ROSC on your mother, your brother, your husband, uh, your children, whatever, right? I'm going to give you the caveat that you're going to get ROSC no matter what. And I'm going to let you decide whether you want to give epi or you don't want to give epi. Okay. You tell me if you want it. So I'm going to get ROSC either way, then I don't want it. You don't want it. Okay, I agree, right? If you're gonna get ROSC, the last thing you wanna do is give epi and possibly fry a bunch of brain cells. Mm -hmm. So let me ask it the other way. I'll guarantee you can, you can choose epi or no epi, but you will not get ROSC without epi. Okay. You want the epi? I want the epi. You want the epi, yeah, because people that don't get ROSC have really bad neurologically attached survival, right? <laughs> right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so it isn't that we never give epi, and it isn't that we always give epi. <clears throat> we have to give epi to the right patient at the right time after optimizing uh, ICP, cerebral perfusion, drainage out of the brain. So what we've done, and you know, our local EMS agency says, we have to give epi as soon as we establish vascular access. So if you look at our wheel of survival, we establish vascular access, 
the very last thing we do, right? Mm -hmm. So we've optimized because it's got the least amount of benefit to the patient. So it's the last thing we do, establish vascular access. I know it's, you know, we're paramedics, we have to start IVs, right? You know, it's like a priority for some reason because IVs somehow save lives, but that's not the case, right? We do everything else in our wheel of survival. We do all of the tools and the very last thing we do is establish a, an IV and give epinephrine, which puts us somewhere 12 to 15 minutes into the code so that we've optimized everything before giving the epinephrine. That's how we do it. And now let's hear from Dr. Holly discussing the current science of epinephrine use in sudden cardiac arrest. Well, I'll be happy to try. Uh, I'll have to say that the data around epinephrine is really kind of confusing right now. Uh, I think what you're hearing though, uh, in, in regards to best practices right now, it is really about two things, and that is the utilization of end-tidal CO2 as a great physiologic marker for better perfusion is vitally important. And I think the part of the reason that the, the studies around epinephrine have been so confusing is that we, we're, we have trouble um, making all the other things the same so that we can really compare uh, when we dose epi and how much epi we give, et cetera. So for example, there are uh, a number of studies that have not shown a great uh, improvement in uh, outcomes with uh, epinephrine. There was a, a huge study in England just a few years ago that showed um, uh, a, a short-term benefit in that uh, a, a significantly larger uh, number of patients survived to uh, hospital arrival on that sort of stuff but actually virtually no difference in uh, patients who are discharged from the hospital, particularly those who were discharged neurologically intact from the hospital. And uh, as a matter of fact, many of those that got significant doses of epinephrine actually did worse in that study. Um, so it's quite confusing. There, there's some data out of Australia that uh, suggests that uh, epinephrine uh, late in an arrest is not beneficial and may actually worsen outcomes there as well. So I think it's back to what we said initially, which is the data is pretty confusing to us. But I think one of the things here that's really important is to um, uh, look at some of the animal studies around perfusion and the impact of good quality perfusion related to the use of a drug like epinephrine. And what I'll tell you in summary is that we have done uh, CPR on uh, a porcine model that's been in cardiac arrest for 35 or 40 minutes. About 20 minutes of that have, have been getting very high quality CPR with entitled CO2s that are near normal uh, and very high uh, perfusion based on uh, other parameters and have noticed in that animal model that uh, a very small dose of epinephrine, uh, half normal dose of epinephrine, uh, followed by a shock results in ROSC uh, more than 80% of the time. And the majority of those animals actually are neurologically intact. Uh, and so I, I, I think part of what we are beginning, beginning to understand is that epinephrine probably has some benefit in cardiac arrest, but that perfusion is the best drug we have. Very high quality perfusion, 
puts uh, or, or sets the body into a physiologic state where epinephrine can actually be a bit more effective perhaps. Uh, and to perform the functions that we hope epinephrine performs. So, for example, part of what we've seen is, uh, or part of current thinking around epinephrine is that it may be less about the stimulation of the heart and, and the uh, roughening of uh, a, a fine V-fib to a coarse V-fib so that we're more likely to defibrillate them. And the improvement may actually be coming from a peripheral vasoconstriction from epinephrine, which is forcing more blood into the central circulation, resulting in better perfusion, and therefore resulting in a, a higher probability of a resuscitatable rhythm in a neurologically intact survivor. So I, I'll just sort of end this by saying uh, epinephrine remains a bit of an enigma right now, uh, but that the best drug we have out there is perfusion. So good quality CPR uh, and all the things that we've been talking about today uh, are what really make a difference in cardiac arrest outcomes. So you've been walking down this road for quite some time now. I'm curious where you are. If we just took a snapshot today, how would you say this is affecting your cities today? Exactly, you know, what are your numbers? What's the community experiencing right now as a result of all your efforts? Yeah, Ginger, I think, uh, you know, when you, when you look at uh, our numbers, we kind of started out at about 23% ROSC. We implemented the the rescue pod and uh, the auto pulse. We went to about 40% uh, when we implemented all of our tools, the whole the whole bundle of care, the the whole advanced cardiac resuscitation uh, toolbox. Um, we're at 60% um, ROSC. So and that's all comers. That's regardless of rhythm. That's regardless of time downtime. That's regardless of if it was witnessed or not witnessed. That's all comers. 60% um, ROSC across the board. We do, you know, if you look at Utstein numbers, and I'm, I'm, you know, always happy to tout Utstein numbers, except that's a really small percentage of our population, right? We got to save everybody, not just the Utsteins, but our Utstein number is somewhere around 83%. Um, overall, neurologically intact survival, um, we're in excess of 18% neurologically intact survival to discharge. Kevin? So when we started this program about two and a half years ago, uh, we were at 36% ROSC, and um, we were we were kind of measuring the all-comers as well at that time. And we un we were unknowingly doing that. We hadn't joined the CARES registry. We weren't really following the Utstein protocol, and so we were at 36%. And the remainder of the year, which was eight months after we did the education, we went from 36% to 63%. And as time has gone on, and we've adapted and we've changed, and the numbers have increased in cardiac arrest or decreased depending on the year. Uh, we're running about 53 to 58%, just depends on the, uh, which year. And we initially, uh, our first year, we're at the 18% survivability as well. And um, we're now about 15%, but that equates to about 10 extra people um, still able to function, highly function within our community. Um, since we do have all comers and cardiac arrest sometimes involve uh, traumatic events, uh, we, we we um, we break those people out a little bit, and uh, but we're still at 15% um, survivability, which is is far higher than a, a majority of the nation. And you know, uh, Kevin Ginger, did, those those numbers are all important, and they they sound really good. But the bottom line is that people in Lawrence, Douglas, Kansas, people in Naperville, are walking and talking. They have one more Christmas, one more birthday, one more day with their grandkids, their wife, and they're they're real people, right? And they're really alive today. And that's what's important. And that's what we're getting done in the community every day. 
and and all of the agencies, Rialto, Naperville, um, any agency, we attempt to uh, celebrate those um, successes and we invite those individuals to come visit the crews and we celebrate their life and celebrate that extra chance that uh, we're a part of, um, their families are a part of, and it really does, um, you know, motivates us to continue to, to work hard and, and create more science and create more data uh, every, every day for all of our communities. Thanks again for joining us as we completed our discussion of the tools of advanced cardiac resuscitation. Hopefully, this has inspired you to take a look at your community and how you can improve your outcomes. We want to hear your questions, and in the fifth episode, we're going to be live and on demand in the future. Send those questions to acr at We'll see you soon.